This is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we begin the Christian year this Sunday. It doesn't begin with the calendar year for Christians in liturgical churches. It begins with the first Sunday of Advent. So what I want to do is say some things uh, by way of introduction, both to the season of Advent itself and also to... Uh, the liturgical year generally, so we have some idea of what what's involved in all of that. There is a Latin maxim in the Anglican Church that has been around, well, before there was an Anglican Church, or for that matter. It's uh, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. I think we got it from somebody named Prosper of Aquitaine. And I don't know exactly when that is. It isn't a, a, a fuel additive, Aquitaine. It doesn't make your car run better. <laughs> but he was from Aquitaine, so that may be the thing in, in France. The law of prayer is the law of belief. So when we begin the church year, it's important uh, to remind ourselves uh, of a couple of things. One that is not related directly to the liturgical year or the, the study of the liturgy but we should remind ourselves that the scriptures, the church rather, is prior to the scriptures. And the law of prayer is the law of belief is what we pray we believe. So the church from the jump was a praying community who gathered regularly and worshipped. You know, we don't have evidence in uh, anciently, if that's a word, that uh, the Eucharist was celebrated on a daily basis in many places. It was celebrated on Sunday, but what we do have absolute evidence for is that the, uh, there was a gathering of Christian people every day for public prayer. So what that means in our tradition and in the liturgical churches is there are provisions within our prayer books and so forth for us to pray every day, to read the divine office, morning and evening prayer, Compline, noonday prayer, and so forth. So that has been part of our common life together, and it animates everything else that we do. So in one sense, the worship precedes the doctrine. The doctrine uh, rises out of the praying community. The doctrine also rises out of the biblical witness. But we need to understand this in an order because sometimes things get confused and, and out of hand. Aidan Kavanaugh, who was a famous liturg liturgist, he died a few years ago, in his book, uh, The Elements of Right, uh, said, once in touch with time as marking the implacable unfolding of divine purpose, it is a time that we recall as Episcopalians who worship according to a liturgical calendar year in and year out that time is important and that the liturgy is the way through which one is able to perceive its true purpose. One is able to perceive its true nature to be not an endless succession of bare moments, but a purposeful thrust home towards its holy source. So some people may want to say, well, why are you doing this over and over again, you know? But we do it over and over again to remind ourselves 
and to be faithful to being a praying community. I'm so grateful to be a member of the clergy in a liturgical church. If I had to think about inventing this every Sunday, I'd be beside myself, right? So there's also a reason uh, for doing this in, in maybe practical terms in that sense. So here's some Episcopalian 101 about the liturgical year. When uh, Christians began to coalesce around their belief in the resurrection of Jesus and his Messiahship and a variety of other things, they continued to pray, but they didn't immediately go down to St. Luke's Church downtown Jerusalem and begin services from the Book of Common Prayer. The earliest record that we have of Advent as a season that we celebrate now dates from the 6th century. Doesn't mean it wasn't done before, but the scholarly evidence, the hard evidence, and one of the locations for that is a book called the Gelasian Sacramentary. And in it is the prayers for the Eucharist and all of the gospel readings and so forth. Um, it was in Latin, you can imagine, and by the 6th century and so forth. Um, so Advent began in about the 6th century BCE, or rather CE, Common Era. We say this now not because we, we want to forsake AD sounds so much better. It's, it's out of sort of ecumenical solicitude for one another, right? BCE is before the Common Era, and CE is the Common Era, all right? Because there's some people, like the Jews, who don't have AD. They have their own calendar. They're in year 5,000 or something at this point, right? So we're dating from the time before the birth of Jesus. Actually, it was a pretty uh, good reckoning by the monk who produced this. Uh, he was a little bit out, so Jesus is actually born in 4 BC. You want to make it turn out right. So that's the thing. So we have the season of Advent, and in many places, uh, it was six weeks long. It began on November the 14th, and it was called in Northern Europe St. Martin's Lent. St. Martin's Day, St. Martin of Tours, is November the 14th. He was a famous saint in the 4th century. He'd been a general and then uh, a bishop. And so six weeks long, and it was another Lent. If you think about the liturgical year, it goes this way. Easter, first post, second post, Christmas, third post, a preparatory season before Easter, we call Lent. Fourth post, a preparatory season before Christmas, Advent, and then the other season, the great 50 days and the, green, and the Sundays after Pentecost follow uh, after that. But that's sort of the chronological order for how the liturgical year began. By the time we get to beyond the 600s, <clears throat> maybe in the 800s, with Charlemagne and his, his uh, uh, deacon uh, Alcuin of York, they create a, a Christian calendar, and Advent becomes shortened. It becomes as long as it was in the Mediterranean countries in Italy, Rome, and in other places in the Mediterranean, Advent was four weeks long and slightly less 
penitential and Lent-like. So they reduced it to four weeks, but retained some of the penitential aspect of the season. So as you can imagine, the Mediterranean more laid back situation won out, probably, and I'm delighted that was the case because it got pretty heavy duty with, with this. I have been, don't, I don't, don't ask why, but I have been interested in the last month and a half or so in the text of the New Testament and how we arrived at it and the languages outside of English that produce the Bible and these things. And uh, here's the, what I want to say about the penitential overlay in the season of Advent and even, for that matter, in Lent. For 1,400 years, the Bible that was used by Christian people, if they could read, in the West, was the Vulgate Bible, the Latin Bible. It was translated into Latin by St. Jerome in the 4th century. So that was our Bible. And actually, it's a very good Bible. I haven't heard, if you can't believe it, I have heard evangelical Christians who are scholars in these Bible colleges or uh, Protestant seminaries who read the, once in a while the Latin Bible for their own personal devotions. Not only to keep their hand in with the Latin, but because they say it's a, it's a very good translation. Be that as it may, the original New Testament was written in Greek. So we have a translation now into Latin. And Jerome made an extremely good translation from Greek manuscripts into Latin and from Hebrew manuscripts uh, into Latin for the Old Testament. So if you read in Matthew's Gospel where John the Baptist is in the wilderness, we'll be introduced to him again next week. John the Baptist is in the wilderness saying to people they should repent. Look at their life in a different direction. For 1,400 years, if you read it in the Latin text, John the Baptist says, Penitentium agite, do penance. So Luther came along and said, well, let's just have a little peek at the Greek now that we know and we've got the text. We'll take a look and it says meditoiete, repent. And it's different than do penance. It means to look at your life from a new angle, to change the direction of your life, to reconvert yourself as you become more aware of God's purposes for you. And this is something that comes up often in our lives, isn't it, where we do a little reevaluation or a reorientation. Father Thomas Keating says that repentance is changing the direction where to, for where you're looking for happiness. And that's the process of repentance. It isn't only penitentium agitae. There's nothing wrong with doing penance if you need to do it. But it's not the main thing. So if we think about Advent and we think about liturgical scholarship and we think about what's the emphasis that we wish to place on the seasons, Advent is a time that has a more solemn and somber character than the green season. But it's also a time for a certain amount of uh, expectancy. The themes of the season of Advent are the necessity of being prepared, looking at your life in a new way, which I've just talked about as repentance, hope, being a hopeful per person. Uh, somebody said to me some years ago, hope means honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. 
the ability to stay on message internally in your emotional, spiritual, and mental states. Expectation. Expectation isn't like waiting at the Mervyn's ad at the door, open, open, open. So a lot of people this time of year, that's what they think this is all about, right? Expectancy is making effective use of the imagination to see what might be. You know? What is it that you think, you know, might be in your life? How do you understand what that is? Joy. Joy is not some sort of giddy elation that we feel, but it is the sure confidence that the uncertainties and conundrums of life will become less confusing and baffling and in, come into clearer and sharper focus for us. Think, think about an example in your own life when you, th you thought you were just absolutely confused. You had no idea about how to proceed and things began to come together partly because uh, you expected them to. You had the ability to use the powers of your imagination to uh, think about what might be. And finally, in the season of Advent, and this will flow into the Christmas cycle, Christmas for the two or three weeks of Christmas, uh, and that is that Christian people are to be people of peace. And we see uh, some of that in the reading from this morning from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The three themes that are in the readings for this week are the vision of God's future inspires God's people to live godly lives in the future. God is present in the lives of people on a daily basis. And God's future include praises from all peoples and peace among the nations. That we can hope for that to be the case. In Isaiah, we have the famous passage about beating your uh, uh, prune your implements of war into plowshares and pruning hooks, and that there will be peace. We're going to start reading from the prophet Isaiah in Advent, and what, what this is for us is that if we understand the, the sort of way the liturgical year goes, it is recalling people to these Isianic prophecies that the people who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus said if we'd have only uh, understood more clearly uh, our own literature, we would have seen that his life and his words and his works were predicted by these readings, that they tell us something about God's plan. And a major part of that is that God's plan is that all people come into his saving embrace that that is what the plan of God is, and it is announced now in the person of Jesus Christ and in his earthly ministry. I, uh, so let me say something about Paul. All of these readings are apocalyptic in nature, you know. And I mentioned to, I've mentioned this to you before recently. We've read a lot of uh, apocalyptic stuff in the Green Sundays in this cycle. And you have to remember that when people wrote that way, they weren't talking about some uh, time in the future or some other geographical or spatial location. They were talking about events that they had lived through themselves and understood in ways differently after they occurred than they had before. So Paul had a particular understanding of what was going to happen. And he believed Jesus was going to come any minute. 
And so he told everybody that they had to be attentive and to be aware and to do all of those kinds of things. One of the difficulties is that the church had to deal with, and in the biblical witness uh, they do to some degree, was Paul said all this and they're going, well, he's not here yet. What do we do now? How do we live in the meantime? And what is it that we're supposed to do? The benefit of reading this from Paul is that he is speaking to Christian people about the importance of mindfulness, paying attention, looking at the signs of the times. You know, I I suspect anybody in the helping professions has experienced this, but um, one of the things that always never ceases to amaze me is that I speak with people often who are like plankton in the sea. You know, they are moved by forces that they have no knowledge of where they came from or where they were going. And part of the reason for that is um, a lack of interest in the examined life. There could be a lot of reasons for that. You know, sometimes you can overthink things uh, a lot. So you don't want to do that necessarily, but you do want to have some consciousness about the direction of your life and where it's going. And in Matthew's gospel today, Jesus is speaking to the disciples about uh, not knowing the time or when all of this is going to happen. So what you need to do is to pay attention and to be watchful and look at events, you know. You need to say, well, this is when uh, I I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust in God that it will be the case. Matthew is writing in about 80 A.D., 75 to 80 A.D., and what happened before he wrote his gospel was the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That's also true for Luke. So they saw what they believed at the time was the end of the world when that happened. The the temple was destroyed, and, and the city was ruined, and people ran away from Jerusalem. And we're gone for a long time. And so part of the Gospels have to do with how we understand restoration and building again and doing these kinds of things, looking and paying attention to what it is that uh, occurs in the course of human history. There's so much of what we see now. It's like, you know, I, I don't know why this popped into my head, but... Uh, Years ago, when uh, Bob Dole was running for president of the United States, there was some 22-year-old person who was interviewed by one of the news shows. And, you know, uh, Bob Dole was a war hero in World War II, and he was very badly wounded. And this guy said, you know... I'm just getting tired of all this World War II stuff. It's just too much, right? I don't want to think about it anymore. That was a long time ago. Yeah? I think it's probably still a good idea to once in a while have a little peek at what went on there and why we got into that in the first place. And some form of historical consciousness is important. Jesus said, we don't know the times and the places. There's a controversy in the text here because uh, it says 
correctly in the NRSV. It doesn't say the father and the son. It's the son doesn't know, nobody else knows, only the father knows. So some extremists who believe that there's new age stuff in the new translations believe that we have kicked the divinity of Jesus in the teeth in this particular passage. That's how this can get. So let's not do that. But in any case, we'll know something about about this. Uh, As you begin the season of Advent, remember, time is important. There's two kinds of time. People get anxious and they say, well, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it? Remember, there are two kinds of time in the New Testament. There's chronos, chronological time. And there's kairos, which is time. Right? So God's work occurs in kairos time, not chronos. And you can see it clearly when, when you read it that that's, that that's the case. So don't be ang- this is the time of year when time becomes very crucial, doesn't it? There's so much to do, although I'm not so sure that it's true just for this time of the year, maybe in the way it used to be, because everybody is booked up all the time. Everybody is constantly booked up, you know. Now, in my cynical moments, I think that has something to do with the fact is I'm booked up because you're waiting for a better opportunity to come along, right? Because there are better opportunities that might occur. So you want to always remain a little ambiguous about what it is you're going to do. But the truth of the matter is that uh, we need to have some time control, some balance in this, in this sort of thing. I used to use this as an occasion, and most clergy did, the first Sunday of Advent to talk about, remember the reason for the season, that kind of keep the Christ in Christmas, you know, all that. I think most of you do know that now, in some way. It's not like, well, we're telling, we're speaking about a new thing. I just observe uh, what people do. And they realize they need to do that, or they maybe need to slow down a little bit, or they maybe not need to get involved in such a whirlwind of activity. About 10 or 15 years ago in the New Yorker magazine, there was a cartoon of a guy sitting in his chair in his apartment in Manhattan, and over on the wall was a lever that was here, and his friend was over by the lever, and he turned and said, Stanley, turn up the festive vortex. You know, let's put this puppy in overdrive. Sometimes I think some people thrive on that, but it's important if you're going to slow down and look at things in a better and a renewed sense. So as you begin uh, the season of Advent, think about how you might do that. Remember that this season is a bit more solemn, but it always promises a future a positive future for those who put their trust in God. And you can understand more deeply and fully that uh, God needs you to fulfill his plan for the cosmos. Amen.